good morning, good afternoon, good evening to uh, to Sapir audience on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and um, in Europe, Israel, and beyond. We are so grateful that you joined us um, in these final weeks of summer, as Brett and I were just discussing. Uh, for today's discussion about the current issue of Sapir, the 10th volume, and it is a beautiful, beautiful product. I encourage you to, to read it if you haven't already, and if you have, I encourage you to reread it. You'll notice that um, today we're going to uh, do something a little bit different. We're going to flip the script. And rather than having our editor-in-chief, Brett Stevens, serve in the moderator's chair, I'm going to be the one wielding the questions on a topic that is by no means new, neither historically, academically, experientially. It's not necessarily new to the Jewish community and her friends and allies. It's a topic with the unenviable superlative of constituting the oldest hatred, or in the parlance of the last 150 years, what we now call anti-Semitism. So to our viewers, and this is really the interactive part, if, if you know the answer to what I'm about to say, please write it in the chat during the course of this conversation because I might be getting it wrong. So I'm not sure if I remember, Brett, you might even know the answer. I don't know if it was Amos Oz or David Grossman or Aleph Bet Yehoshua, like one of these like esteemed Israeli luminaries, novelists who wrote at the beginning of a book, and I paraphrase this with deep humility. Um, he lamented that he didn't really know what else there was to say about the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, that so much oxygen had been spent on the topic, is there anything novel perhaps that he could add to the mix? Um, and the same one could presume could be said about anti-Semitism, right? The issue has been lavished with attention and sadly um, for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately, right? The number of incidents in the United States continue their steady ascent. Um, the memory of the most deadly attack against Jews is still really quite fresh in our minds. The President of the United States and the White House opted to develop, I think the first whole of government strategy to address this uh, perennial problem that is anti-Semitism. We'll get to that later. So there's been a lot of ink devoted to this topic. And I know, Brett, you've spoken about this a lot and you've written about this a lot, but I'll tell you this. I was in shul this past Shabbat and someone comes up to me and remarks unprompted, how original your essay was and how much it made him rethink what we should do in response to the plague that is anti-Semitism. So shout out to Larry. And uh, it, you passed basically like the mid services synagogue conversation test, which in my mind is, a, is really a great marker for success. Before we delve into the specifics of your essay, which we're gonna do, maybe you can just share a little bit with uh, the readers, why we opted to devote Sapir's 10th issue to this topic of anti-Semitism and really what you were hoping for uh, our readers to glean or, or whatnot. Well, I mean, first of all, Hanan, um, uh, it's great to see you. And it's uh, actually kind of nice to, as you said, flip the script and, and be in uh, on the opposite side of the, the uh, interviewer's chair here. Um, I think with every issue of Sapir, we are trying to do two things. We are trying to, on the one hand, seize a particular moment that feels urgent and relevant, and 
but just as importantly, we're asking ourselves, what can we say about this that is new? What what can we say about it that in the as our as our subtitle has it contributes to a thriving Jewish future? And um, when we sat down uh, as editors to discuss it, we thought that there was a lot of um, attention being given to anti-Semitism. You mentioned, I think, the unprecedented whole of government effort uh, in the Biden administration to to devise uh, a comprehensive strategy, something that we've never seen uh, before, that's never really been needed, uh, you might say, at least in the last uh, 70, or 80, uh, uh, 70 or 80 years. There's a proliferation of effort and philanthropy around the subject of anti-Semitism, various uh, movements uh, really trying single-mindedly to uh, devote themselves to, uh, 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 to the subject. And at the same time, as all of this is happening, and, and you noted the alarming rise of anti-Semitic incidents, which I think are really just the ones we see, not the ones uh, that, we, uh, that we sense, um, what I felt was a lot of um, um, imprecise um, thinking on the subject that ran the risk of contributing to efforts that were well-meaning, but would not have the kind of effect that I think all of us uh, in this, in, you know, all of us present today virtually would like, would like to see. So that's why we, we thought this is the moment to write about anti-Semitism uh, and to, a, to, to look at it from angles, uh, just a variety of angles from, from academia, the international sphere, philanthropic questions of philanthropy, the, 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 the unity of the Jewish community or lack of unity of the Jewish community in, in addressing it. It just seemed a really ripe moment. And I think that's what we've accomplished. Thanks, Brad. I want to delve into that notion of uh, imprecision, but I do want to uh, remind the audience that if you do have questions, and I presume you will, um, do not hesitate to ask them. The harder, the better. Um, and we'll put them to, uh, to the test and ask Brett about them, uh, perhaps the latter 15 or so minutes of, uh, of this re uh, recording. So please don't hesitate to ask questions. Um, that notion of imprecision. Right. Um, it was clear, fresh, really fresh out the gate, that you perceive that what we're, that the way we're doing this, or at the very least, the way we're thinking about this, is all wrong. Right. right. There's no, there's no soft opening to your essay. It begins with like, uh, with, a, with an immediacy, almost a sense of urgency. I want to like open up the, it's the first sentence, right? The first falsehood we tell ourselves about anti-Semitism is that it is mysterious, right? You make what I think is like a rather intriguing and dare I say provocative argument that hatred of the Jewish people is actually rooted um, in like a perverse logic of kind that has a personal political and intellectual appeal, right? Um, and that if the Jews stood for something, which we have, right? Either by virtue of our mere presence in a land, not our own or or because like the concepts that the Jews brought into the world or that the Jews popular, that it popularized, if it didn't originate with the Jews, that if that is the case, then perhaps anti-Semites like uh, either wittingly or, or not stood for something too, right? And defining what they opposed. And I think you talk about it here is that um, 
you know, they're anti-freedom uh, in biblical Egypt, or maybe they're anti-particularity in the ghettos of Europe, or um, anti, you know, they're anti-nonconformity, whatever it is. So I appreciate, you know, how you took this notion of viewpoint diversity, by the way, to its widest margins by trying to place the reader in the mindset of a king who had to deal with the Jewish minority. But I think your point, you can tell me if I'm completely off base, is that there is in fact, like there is a rhyme and a reason to it all. Like we have to stop fooling ourselves and assuming that is the case, that it's not some mysterious thing. And I think there's merit to the argument. Um, who is telling whom that it is mysterious? Who has been doing that um, over X amount of years? And where do you see that manifest? Sure, I mean, I remember, but this is one example among uh, many, uh, a wonderful uh, column by Charles Krauthammer on the subject of anti-Semitism. Maybe it was an interview or an essay. Uh, and he began with this idea. It's just this mysterious thing that has pursued us from one generation to the next, one, one country to the next, one historical epoch uh, uh, to the next. And that stayed with me for many years. I think it's it's widely shared. Why do they hate us? Well, we're a convenient scapegoat, right? Uh, and scapegoating is is as old as uh, as time. And this, I think, leads to a kind of a fuzziness in thinking that doesn't serve us well. Because if you cannot really diagnose the the disease or diagnose uh, the threat, you're going to run the risk of coming up with um, uh, misbegotten prescriptions. And so that, that is the genesis of, 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 of this piece. I mean, what I argue in this piece is we're getting the definition wrong, um, although I write about that a little later in the essay. Uh, we're getting the diagnosis wrong, and hence we're getting uh, the uh, prescriptions uh, wrong. Um, and so <laughs> I have to kind of march the reader through my, my thinking on, on those points. But to what you're, you're raising here, Hanan, Jews stand for a set of really radical ideas, powerful ideas that go in many ways um, against, uh, you might say, the grain of human nature. Um, and they do so in order to elevate human nature and to create possibilities that uh, might not have been uh, uh, natural or normal or developed the way they had, had it been, had, had, had the Jews not presented these. Now, uh, there are historians, I'm sure on this will say, well, actually these ideas were present elsewhere um, in different forms, but nowhere do you find, I don't think, uh, do you find this combination of ideas persisting over time so thoroughly and comprehensively associated with Jewish thought. And what are they? They're monotheism, number one, uh, peoplehood, freedom seeking, moral absolutes, chosenness, this longstanding emphasis on literacy, including, and this I think is historically quite interesting, including female literacy in the written word, and then this idea of argument for uh, the sake of, of, of heaven. So, you know, you take something like uh, monotheism, right? The idea there is one God and one set of rules, right? And that this God makes, makes rules, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people, which means that there can be judgment across culture, right? That's, that's a radical thought. Now, today we take it for granted. When we talk about human rights, it means that as Americans, you and I can look at atrocities like the treatment of Uyghurs in China 
and we exercise a sense of moral judgment that there's something foundationally wrong with it. But that, that stems from an idea of a universal morality. Take something like peoplehood, the idea of a locus of identity that stands between the government and the individual or the state and the individual. We, today, we sort of unthinkingly talk about the notion of hyphenated identities, Irish American, Italian American, Black Americans, and so on. That's a beautiful and powerful thought, which means that we have loyalties, right, which are uh, go beyond the claims of loyalty that uh, the state or the sovereign has on us. Powerful thing. And I expand on these throughout the, the, the essay. But if you're going to have these radical ideas, they're going to engender reaction. That's why all anti-Semitism is fundamentally uh, reactionary, including anti-Semitism, by the way, on, on, on the left. But it always has that reactionary element. That being said, we are fools to think that the reaction, the opposition to those ideas doesn't have a kind of rationale and an instrumental logic. That's why I, I, I bring up this hypothetical of an ancient king. You're that ancient king and you have these these disputatious people who like to argue in your midst, it's not an easy thing, right? And, and so that I think has to lay the groundwork of kind of understanding anti-Semitism as emerging from a set of coherent ideas. I think there are terrible ideas, they're dangerous ideas, they're ideas that are always associated with despotism and oppression, but we have to treat them as ideas and not just a mystery. Okay, so if we if there is some coherence around it, um, and you know, I want to then sort of delve into that second um, falsehood that you that you highlight, and I'm actually seeing some questions populate um, in the mix from folks who are asking similar questions. I actually remember this from a time at the White House, but sometimes there's a, a frustration from some constituents, and definitely not all, but some, um, and they would be frustrated that you know, we or others would include anti-Semitism um, in a sentence with other isms, other hatreds, right? The notion being the counter argument is, no, 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 no. This thing is completely unique. It's distinct. And frankly, you water it down, one waters it down by placing it in a long sentence punctured by multiple commas and a sad list of hatreds, right? That, that exists today. So this second falsehood that you identify is a notion that anti-Semitism is not just another form of racism or ethnic bigotry. You argue that like, no, 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 no. It is much broader than that. And, and I've seen that, um, you know, others have made a similar claim. I think, you know, Yair Rosenberg in the Atlantic, I think folks at the ADL, they've stressed exactly like you that this isn't simply a prejudice. Um, against Jews, it's a, it's, it's a conspiracy about how the world um, operates and functions. It's, uh, it's, it's, like a, it's, like a it's like a conspiratorial version of, uh, you know, Adam Smith's economic theory about the invisible hand, right? Things are the way they are. And I think you write in your piece because of the hidden hand of the Jews. Um, so, you know, does, does that mean in your estimation that all hatreds of Jews inherently is conspiratorial? Are there gradations of hatred or dislike based on like say some other factors? Like for example, um, let's say a certain pocket of upstate New York 
is concerned about uh, elements of the Orthodox community moving in and mass. Is that similar to different forms of anti-Semitism? Curious your take. Well, uh, the thing is, anti-Semitism comes in a whole uh, a variety of, of not just flavors, but also gradations. When I was a child growing up in Mexico, I was subjected to sort of very low-grade uh, anti-Semitism of the of the kind of thought of uh, you know uh, Jews are good at money or 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 Jews are greedy. These these. Uh, classic uh, anti-Semitic uh, tropes that emerged from one particular stream of uh, anti-Semitism. One of the points that I'm trying to make in this essay is um, because Jews stand for uh, uh, a variety of ideas and because Jews have stood for centuries, uh, right, against different, um, different majority groups, uh, different forms of, of oppression, right, you, you have uh, a, a very different anti-Semitism is is in fact a very distinct hatred. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Leo Tolstoy's line in the beginning of Anna Karenina: um, "All unhappy families are unhappy in their own way." I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I think all isms and all hatreds have a kind of a particularity. But in the case of of anti-Semitism, what in a sense makes it distinct is that it's it's so broad and it's so different from other forms of hatred. So one of the things that used to drive me crazy when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the uh, Labour Party in Great Britain is he said, well, how can I possibly be an anti-Semite? I have fought racism all my life. And I think the guy might just have been stupid enough to believe that comment. Um, but that's the idea that, well, anti-Semitism is just racism against Jews. Uh, uh, now, there is a form of anti-Semitism that is racism against Jews. You can look back to the era of the Inquisition in Spain, the Sentencia in the 15th century, all the way to the race laws of, of the Nazis and, uh, and the fascists, and there is that particular stream. But anti-Semitism is also a religious hatred, which makes it distinct from other forms of, 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 of bigotry, because religious hatreds tend to take the form of a desire for purgation, which leads to the, helps contribute to the genocidal aspects of, of anti-Semitism, not just the desire to subjugate, but to, to eliminate, right? There is another form of anti-Semitism, by the way, which is profoundly political, uh, because anti-Semites see themselves as organizing against the political interests of the Jews. And I mention that because in order to emphasize the extent to which anti-Zionism just constitutes its own branch of, uh, of the broad family, what we call anti-Semitism. Another point that's important to note, maybe I'm mixing up too many concepts here, um, but a, a point that's important to note is that I think the emotional basis of anti-Semitism differs from the basis of something like racism. The racist sees, say, uh, the, the object of, of his hatred, a black person or another minority group, a racist sees that person as deservedly beneath him. The anti-Semite always or almost always sees the Jew as undeservedly above him. So anti-Semitism speaks in the language of envy, right? That's, that's the animating emotion. Why do these Jews have what I haven't got? Why do they have the Nobel Prizes or, the, or, or, or all of these positions? And that means that anti-Semitism often travels, by the way, 
Um, on the left, right, in terms of the language of capitalist oppression, the rich versus everyone else, the 1% against, uh, uh, against everyone else. When we don't recognize just how broad a hatred anti-Semitism is, we tend to think, well, anti-Semitism is just something, it's just a phenomenon that happens on the other side of the political spectrum. Because if you're a good progressive you're, and, and an anti-racist, you'll say, well, I cannot be an anti-Semite anti because I'm an anti-racist, failing to recognize that, uh, that elements of the left have historically lent themselves fully to various kinds of anti-Semitism. And it happens in, in, on, on the other side too. Well, I'm pro-Israel, right? I'm a, I'm a Zionist, how could I possibly engage in anti-Semitic tropes. Meanwhile, you're talking about the evil of the globalists who are conspiring and shadowy, you know, at the Trilateral Commission or, or the Bilderberg Conference to subjugate the world, another classic anti-Semitic trope. So I want us to recognize, one of the purposes of this article is to recognize just the breadth of, of the hatred. I think I'm glad that you raised both points. Those who hide behind the notion that, hey, I've been fighting racism my whole life, so therefore I'm not an anti-Semite, or hey, I'm a strong supporter of Israel and therefore I'm not an anti-Semite. It's critical that folks across the spectrum are conscientious of, of those arguments because they uh, they rear their ugly head frequently. And it's important that we, that we, we see it um, and we hear it and we understand it when we do. Uh, but at the risk of getting, I think, a little bit too pedantic, uh, I gotta be honest with you, I struggled uh, with this notion of the word anti-Semitism, right? And you talk about it a little bit in your piece. I mean, it's a it's a term coined by the German journalist Wilhelm Wilhelm Marr, right, in 1879. It's part of like a political effort to combat the proposition of Jewish emancipation. Um, and he starts, as you write, an organization called the League of Anti-Semites. And uh, you know, I've struggled with it. I think for two reasons. You know, one is what the hell is a Semite, right? Like. Who uses that descriptor anymore? Uh, but two is, you know, since when do victims of prejudice sort of adopt the sanitized language of the person who hates them to describe that hate? And yet, it's just what everyone uses. So, you know, I get it. I get it. Do you, I mean, does it bother you at all, or meh, you know, we've got to so use this it. Is, this is a really good question, Hanan, because um, uh, I think that if we really wanted to change um, uh, the language we would use probably use just the term uh, Jew hatred. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's more accurate and it captures the fact that anti-Semitism emerges at a particular point in, in time and uh, to, in, in many respects the term has has passed its sell-by date, right? On the other hand, and this is a, something I struggle with um, uh, just as a columnist, right? We end up accepting the use of terms which we don't particularly love just because they're they're in common currency right because uh, a critical mass of uh, readers or an audience uh, more or less understands what 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 you're getting at right i mean if uh uh, and so the term you know a a, a jew hater uh is probably more precise um, it jars the ear quite a bit maybe as it should um, uh, but most people don't use it, right? So, so uh, you kind of have to accept language as it's used. I mean, look, I'm a believer in uh, less government. In Europe, that makes me a liberal. In America, that makes me a conservative, right? And why, how is it that this term conservative got associated 
with uh, a kind of a laissez-faire economic uh, philosophy, it makes no sense. And yet we use these terms uh, uh, because we, we kind of have to live in the time we are. I mean, if we could make a, a broad effort, I don't raise this in, in, in the essay, but if we could raise it, but make a broad effort to say, to talk about Jew hatred, that would probably be a good thing if you could get a critical mass of people to, to start speaking in, 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 in those terms. I will say this, um, that the term anti-Semitism does clue you in or does clue one in, if you think about it deeply, into a critical aspect of what, of the way in which Jew hatred has expressed itself historically, not just in the last 150 years, but really the last uh, uh, 2000 years, if, if not more. Because the, the very idea of anti-Semitism uh, speaks of the conspiratorial mindset of people who hate Jews. I think that the, the opposition to Jews, what's sometimes called anti-Judaism, right, stems from a set of coherent, wrong and awful, but coherent ideas that then have been historically uh, um, weaponized in the form of a conspiracy theory, whether it's the conspiracy theory that Jews killed Christ or that they poisoned wells or that they kidnapped Christian children and used their, their, their blood in the baking of matzah or that they're engaged in a worldwide financial conspiracy to control the world's government or for that matter that they have conspired with the world's governments to steal a piece of the Middle East and give it to the Jews uh, against the interests of, of, of the Palestinians, despite allegedly having no ancestral connection to, to that land, there is a through line here um, of which anti-Semitism is a part. I mean, what, what, what Wilhelm Marr basically argued was that, and why he used the term anti-Semitism or, or the term Semitism, was the argument that Jews were basically imposters, right? That a German Jew who said, well, I'm fully German and I I fought in the First World War, for example, I'm a real patriot. I, 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 the only thing that differs is my belief. Uh, the argument there is, well, no, 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 these people are never gonna be real Germans because they're Semites. Now this is a what we now know is a ridiculous term emerging from faulty uh, early 19th century uh, scholarship, but at the time it had an identifiable, uh, identifiable meaning as people from the Middle East and in particular Jews. So the idea here was the Jew is the imposter, and by the way, also the swindler, because he's swindling the, the uh, real Germans out of their patrimony. Same story in France and England and so on. Um, and I think it's important for us to recognize the extent to which conspiracy theory is central to the core of Jew hatred, as, as we've known it for centuries, which is why it, it's central to my effort at a new definition of anti-Semitism. Yeah, one of our, one of our uh, listeners, uh, Gershon Hepner, um, made a similar point in one of his questions, which is why don't you just switch to David Nirenberg's term of anti-Judaism um, as opposed to anti-Semitism. And I think uh, there's some merit to that. And there's been a discussion and debate about, uh, about how to actually talk about this concept in a way that people understand it without necessarily sanitizing it. Um, and then the question is, what do you do to address it? So on this, on this front, you make the argument um, that, uh, well, I don't want to overstate it or, or mis misinterpret it, but the notion of education or Holocaust education, yes, it's a good thing, of course, 
Um, that's not a panacea, right? I mean, Dara Horn made a similar argument um, in the Atlantic uh, a few months ago. And I think there's merit to that, obviously. You know, when, again, at the risk of citing my experience, when, we were at, when I was at the White House International Holocaust Remembrance Day, it's the UN mandated day beginning in 2005, um, I think chronicling the uh, liberation of Auschwitz. What we opted to do and the president did is we brought a survivor, right? Um, into the Oval Office to meet with President Biden. Um, and 30 minutes turned into 90 minutes and, and, and they shared stories. And the central premise was, as long as there is a living memory of the Holocaust, it is incumbent upon us to share those stories um, and to identify um, all of the various lessons learned. There are now museums all over the world and mass. Um, but I think your point is, this is important, but it's, it's not gonna necessarily um, you know, provide some type of shield or armor against what will inevitably be a series of anti-Semitic twists on, on the experience of having uh, survived the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, is it mutually exclusive though? Or it's just, you just like, let's well, temper I mean, our expectations. I mean, it would be foolish to say I'm against Holocaust education, right? You know, I think this has a place not only in our identity, but in the story we tell the rest of the world. I'm disturbed by the centrality of it, as if all there is to the Jewish tradition, by the way, and all there is to the anti-Semitic, to the history of anti-Semitism, is this uh, uh, epic tragedy that befell us in the 12 years of 1933 to 1945. Um, why? Because I don't want my Jewish identity to rest on this particular tragedy that, like so many others, affected my immediate, you know, my immediate family, never mind my, my extended family. There's more to my Jewish identity, vastly more to my Jewish identity than that. But the next thing is the idea that, well, if we just take so kids, never mind Jewish children, but, but non-Jewish children to Holocaust museums, well, that will go a long way towards addressing the problem of anti-Semitism. Once they see the, the way in which we have been victimized in the past, they will choose not to victimize us in the present or the future. And I think that is fairly shallow thinking. Um, the, 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 the genesis of this thought um, came uh, more than a dozen years ago when I went to see a play uh, that was staged in New York called Seven Jewish Children by a well-regarded British playwright named Carol Churchill, which belonged, which which it begins, it's sort of organized as a series of vignettes and it begins with a Jewish child in the Holocaust being victimized by the Nazis. And then as the, the arc of it is at the end, it's the Israelis who are behaving like Nazis towards Palestinian children. And I thought that was, I mean, I thought it was an anti-Semitic play. I thought it was a disgrace that it was put on off-Broadway, but a disgrace that it was treated as, as a serious uh, work work of 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 literature uh, with with a moral message. I think it was particularly horrifying that it was Tony Kushner who was uh, its its champion, uh, as I remember it here in 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 the United States. But what it showed you is awareness of the Holocaust has no necessary effect on uh, preventing you from engaging in rank anti-Semitism in the present. If anything, it, it actually, there, there's a risk of it becoming worse because if you say, well, these Jews went through the Holocaust, then they above all should understand 
the evil of what's being done, say, to the Palestinians, right? They, above all, should understand how awful Israel is as an apartheid colonialist state. They should be even more ashamed. They have less of an excuse because they have this history uh, of, of, of uh, uh, um, horror uh, eight generations or eight, dec uh, eight decades ago. So uh, when you talk to you know, members of Students for Justice in Palestine, it's not like they aren't aware that the Holocaust happened, right? In some ways, it's their awareness of the Holocaust that makes them, that, that injects an element of rage and anger into their, what, what really is an anti-Semitic effort to demonize the Jewish state in a way that no other state is, uh, is treated. So I do not think that we are going to address our uh, growing uh, metastasizing anti-Semitism problem in the present by simply busing more kids to the Holocaust museums around the country and saying, hey, Jews were, were, were oppressed in the past too. And by the way, at the end of the day, I, I was once having a conversation with a Jewish professional who said that his efforts in combating anti-Semitism was to give, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically to give Jews a place at the table of victimization, right? I don't want a place at the table of victimization, right? I don't want that. I don't want to say you should not uh, stereotype and demonize me because I have a place at the table of victimization with other other victimized groups. Anti-Semitism is inherently wrong, irrespective of the history of, of uh, uh, oppression, demonization, and 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 murder. So this this is leading to a set of efforts on the part of the organized Jewish community that are exceptionally well-meaning, right? I, I don't doubt the good intentions, but I wonder whether they're going to do anything to dent in a meaningful way um, this rising tide of hatred against Jews. So it's not for us to solve it, you say, right? I'm looking at the book, I'm at the, the journal and said, you know, this is the one truth. The Jews are not going to solve it, not just because it's ultimately unsolvable, because it's not ours to solve. And I remember Rabbi Jonathan Sachs made a similar argument in, in, different, in, a, in a speech he delivered in 2015, right? There's this, there's this notion that also, uh, right, we talk about it in the, in the Seder, Passover Seder, uh, in every generation, they rise up to annihilate us. There's a, on the one hand, it's, I get it because that happens to be true in like almost every century you can go through a list and see when we were expelled uh when we were eradicated uh when there was a genocide uh when there were quotas placed on us moving to certain places etc 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 um so it's kind of baked into our dna because of our experience but i also fear that there's a certain fatalism um attached to that component as well or is the counter argument no it's not fatalism it's just an acknowledgement of reality and so we have to, you know, contend with that. And it's not for us to address. It's for those who aren't Jewish um, to, to figure out how to contend with this. Um, Anti-Semitism, this is a very important point. Um, ultimately, the societies that crumble because they're saturated by anti-Semitism are the anti-Semitic societies. Anti-Semitism is a bigger problem for people in Egypt, where by all survey data, there is... Uh, an overwhelming amount of anti-Semitic public sentiment, which leads to conspiracy thinking, which leads to 
um, a kind of irrationalism that runs through a lot of public discourse than it is for the Israelis. I mean, obviously, Israel feels the effects in terrorism and demonization of the United Nations and, and, and in other ways, but ultimately, the uh, person who is most harmed by anti-Semitism uh, is the anti-Semite, or the societies that are most harmed by anti-Semitism are anti-Semitic uh, uh, societies. Germany would probably have won World War II if Hitler hadn't been uh, an anti-Semite, because he would have harnessed, as the Germans had in World War I, the genius of their greatest Jewish scientists for, for, for a, quote, patriotic uh, a war effort. I mean, that's that's a, a terrifying truth to consider, but I, or or proposition to consider. But I think there's there's something to that that uh, idea. Um, but here, I think, is the point that I really want to drive home, which is that our job in fighting anti-Semitism, above all, rests in strengthening the Jewish world, in increasing our margin, our self-belief, our commitment to core Jewish values, which have served us exceptionally well. And, and there's a personal story here. I'm descended from a fairly illustrious rabbinical family in, um, in Lithuania. Uh, uh, my, my mother's uh, name was Grodzinski. Um, and at one point, the chief rabbi of Vilna was Kaimalzer Heim, Grodzinski. My great-grandfather was sort of the, the black sheep of the family who changed his name from Israel to Ivan and moved to Moscow and devoted himself to an entirely secular life as a Russified, uh, fully Russified Jew and um, became effectively a Menshevik or a social democrat. 1918 was arrested by Felix Jurzinski's secret police and he was never heard from again, presumably put against a wall and, and, and shot. His efforts to move away from his Jewish roots uh, did not spare him from, uh, from tragedy, from, from, from murder. It was the efforts of his descendants, many of whom moved to Israel, to a stronger Jewish community, more open, and, and to liberal societies like the United States where one could be openly Jewish, that ultimately proved the salvation of at least part of our uh, part of our family, and I think that that is true today. If we want to really fight anti-Semitism, we want to invest in superb Jewish day schools that are attractive and financially possible for uh, for uh, Jewish families. We want to strengthen our ties to Israel, whether we're criticizing it or praising it or whatever we're doing. Uh, uh, in between, in the midst of various political uh, 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 crises. We want to invest in making sure that um, the rabbinate is a profoundly attractive and financially attractive destination for some of the sharpest Jewish minds coming out of, of, of uh, high schools and colleges today. That's where the real effort, in my mind, uh, should, should, should th that's where we need to be, be investing uh, these these efforts. Again, I'm not against Holocaust museums. I'm not against uh, uh, um, uh, awareness of, of the issue. I'm all for being clear about definitions and diagnoses. But 
To me, the prescription is if you want to fight anti-Semitism, make the Jewish community stronger, prouder, and more secure. That's pretty profound. I, rec I recall, you know, at the risk of getting personal too, I, that there was a specific, um, I remember a moment when the smartest guy in my high school, the guy got like the 1600 on the SATs, um, opted not to go to medical school, as we all presumed, but to go into the rabbinate. And I thought, that's an important thing because you need, to your point, among the greatest minds to be there to address some of the, the profound theological challenges, to think through the, you know, the different uh, communal dynamics and, and to figure out how we continue to thrive, which is ultimately, I think, what you are. Um, is, is this guy still a rabbi? Yeah. Good. Yeah. I won't, we won't say his name. No one wants the reputation of getting a perfect score on your SATs. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we have like 40 questions, Brett. Um, Great. Let's go I have it. like 40 in my head. Um, so I'm going to ask them and then kind of intersperse it with maybe a few of my own as well. And, um, and then we'll go from there, mindful of time. All right, um, a lot of good ones, a lot of good ones. Let's start with, um, this one's a little bit long. Um, Does it seem as if the anti-Semites have us trapped, asks Donnie Engelhart. It increasingly seems that if we react with alarm, then we either appear whiny or oversensitive or too self-centered in our victimhood. And worse, if we succeed in silencing the anti-Semite, it may be validating of their assertions of Jewish control. However, if we tolerate the anti-Semitism, then we risk normalizing it and failing to develop proper response mechanisms. So Donnie says, I find myself feeling discomfort both in the anti-Semitism itself and often in the public response as well. Your thoughts on the right response, Brett? It's a very astute question, and it, it, it's absolutely true. There is always a kind of low cunning to anti-Semitism, as there is a low cunning to all forms of conspiracy uh, thinking, because um, they're always right, no matter uh, no matter what. And there's a kind of a there's a trap involved. Um, you you ignore it, and so it festers uh, 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 undiminished or. or uh, uh, undisturbed, or you you respond to it and you give the anti-Semite precisely what he what he seeks, which is your attention and your sense that he uh, matters. I don't think there's a particularly good answer to the question. Um, I am probably subjected to more anti-Semitism on a regular basis than maybe most people because I'm somewhat public figure in my role at, at the Times and my well-known support for the State of Israel. Right, uh, do, you, just, do you find that no longer being on Twitter or X has limited that or downsized that or not necessarily? Well, it, it manages to come through in other ways, uh, but absolutely being social. Look, I, I recommend being social off social media for, for your mental health, for your emotional uh, uh, well-being, for making the, the most use of your time. There, there's, there's no limit to, to how, how much I can suggest being off social media, but also be, uh, uh, not being exposed to some of this stuff, which is uh, you know, where these people are desperately seeking attention. You know, I regard it, the anti-Semitism I encounter as like um, walking in a field with goose poop. Um, and um, I just don't wanna step in it. 
Um, but that's kind of the way I, 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 I tend to regard it in, in roughly in, in, in that way. Um, is that the ideal attitude? Is that the optimal attitude that the Jewish community should take? Uh, I don't know. It's a great question. Uh, yeah. But that's my personal uh, approach to it. And I, as I said, I get, I, I get a frightening amount of it. That's awful. Um, and I'll be honest, goose poop was not on my bingo card for this afternoon. But um, I, I take your point. I, Barbara, I could have thought of other metaphors, but I was trying to go for something only semi-gross. I'm with you, my friend. All right, Barbara Goldman, Goldberg-Goldman writes, ADL is doing an excellent job addressing and attacking all forms of anti-Semitism, but given the increase in anti-Semitism throughout the United States, should other Jewish-centric organizations widen their respective lanes and also create centers within their own confines to deal with it? And then there's a separate question about discussing the difference between anti-Semitism and criticism of Israel's government, two separate things, each of which I think we can um, devote an entire hour to. But I'd ask you just to focus on the first part for now. We actually had a piece in here looking at some Jewish organizational responses to how we had to address um, some of the dynamics around anti-Semitism. And it, it, it kind of behooves the question, you know, are we no longer in the halcyon era of, uh, in the United States of hatred of Jews, right? Um, and should there be more Jewish organizations to address this or should those Jewish organizations that do exist address it themselves, even if it's not part of their mandate? The, the ADL was founded with a clear mission to fight anti-Semitism. I don't know how many organizations we really need to, to duplicate that job. There's criticism of the way the ADL does it? That's you know that's fine and, and normal, and perhaps other people have other uh, other ways. But I think too, I mean, if you had to ask me in all candor, are too many Jewish organizations now trying to um, uh, get into the business of fighting anti-Semitism? I would argue yes, and 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 I'll argue yes for 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 this reason. Um, there are 8.6 million American adults who have at least one Jewish parent. And there are 4.3 million American adults who identify religiously and culturally as Jews. That means an attrition rate of 50%, right? Um, I don't want the fight against anti-Semitism to be the first point of identification for what it means to be a Jew. Jean-Paul Sartre had a famous line. He said, the anti-Semite makes the Jew. And I'd hate, I hate the idea that we're kind of proving him right by saying that so much Jewish organizational life is going into uh, fighting this. I'm not saying the ADL should, should uh, the ADL performs massively important tasks simply in quantifying, simply in, in tracking all of these incidents. And they do, uh, uh, they, they, they do a lot more than, uh, than that. But my sense is the effort is, is uh, and this is the whole point of the article, we're, we're doing too much. We're, we're doing too much on this and neglecting the things that really strengthen and secure a Jewish community, which is Jewish self-belief. To the question about criticism of Israel and um, uh, and anti-Semitism, look, I criticize Israel all the time, right? I mean, if you read my columns in the New York Times, you can see that I am strongly opposed to the Netanyahu government, right? I, I think that the reform efforts uh, in the judiciary are misbegotten, totally unnecessary. I can think of a thousand points of criticism entirely legitimate 
uh, about Israel, whether it's about domestic Israeli politics or the relationship with the Palestinians or with the wider Arab world. That's totally normal. Anti-Zionism says that Israel shouldn't exist, okay? Right? So, you know, if you're an American and you didn't like Donald Trump as your president, didn't make you anti-American to be opposed to Trump or be opposed to Trump's policies and vice versa. If you're, if you're a conservative, you don't like Biden. It's not because you're anti-American. Anti-Zionism says the Jewish state should not exist, that it should never have come into being and that it should go away. That's the essence of anti-Zionism. And it astonishes me how difficult it is to get this point across. And by the way, how frequently anti-Zionists use the dodge of, well, you're just against criticism of Israel. How illiberal is that? To excuse an ideology, which is pernicious in itself, not to mention my belief that it's simply an extension of a long tradition of Jew hatred through political as opposed to religious or racial uh, lenses. Do, do you see a distinction if there's a Palestinian, let's say someone whose home was dispossessed or whatnot, making a, a similar comment um, about the state um, or criticism, not necessarily of Israeli policy, but of, 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 it, of their conception perhaps of, uh, of the Israeli state? Um, or not necessarily. It's, it's, it, are there gradations within that space, or it's all inherently what it purports to be, just an anti-Semitic outlook on, on, on the Jewish state? Well, if a Palestinian says, um, the Israelis took my land, and, uh, um, and I don't like uh, Israeli soldiers in my backyard, right? That's normal. If they say, uh, um, Israel is an illegitimate state that should be wiped off the map. And by the way, uh, let's let's get rid of the Jews while we're at it, right? That's that's entirely different. I, I grew up in Mexico, okay? A lot of my family, my father had a Mexican passport. It is a regrettable fact that you Yankees took about half our land in uh, 1848 through a completely sinister treaty called the Treaty of Guadalupe. Right, I'm I'm upset about that, but I still don't want to destroy the state, the, the the United States of America, or Mexicans feel that way. So there are a lot of people who might have strong objections to the policies of other countries, right? Well-founded or ill-founded, but when you call for the destruction of a of of the Jewish state, in my view, whether you're Palestinian or uh, you know uh, some kid at Brown University or whatever. Right, you're you're engaging in a, in what I would call anti-Semitism or a form of Jew hatred. Mm -hmm. um, I have another question. I might have a response to this as well. But Lawrence Summer asks, "What do you think about the Biden administration conflating anti-Semitism and other hate crimes such as Islamophobia in its task force against anti-Semitism?" So I had mixed feelings about the report. Um, on the one hand, I think it is. Um, extraordinary that the Biden administration seized the moment to really issue a, a, a large statement on, on the subject. And so I don't want to neglect, I don't want to um, uh, obscure in my criticism of particulars, my praise for the effort as, as a whole. Um, it is grading to me that there were many mentions of Islamophobia. There was, as I remember, not a single mention of the term anti-Zionism in, in the document. Um, and, you know, if you cast your mind back just a few years to the 
when the Black Lives Matter movement really took off, um, there were some people who got into trouble at the time by saying, well, all lives matter, right? And people said, no, 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 this, yeah, all lives do matter, but this is about Black lives, right? In a document that's about anti-Semitism, right, that is supposed to be about anti-Semitism, to me, I had, I had a problem with the way in which it became a kind of an all lives matter sort of thing. So anti-Semitism is part of a panoply of various hatreds. I don't suppose that if the Biden administration had rolled out a strategy on anti-racism, for instance, that it would have contained innumerable mentions of anti-Semitism. So I, I dislike the way in which there's a kind of reflexive, there's an impulse whenever anti-Semitism is mentioned to say, and we're aware of all these other hatreds too. Let's have a moment in which we're just talking about this one particular hatred, uh, incidents of, incidences of which have quadrupled in the last dozen years or so. Yeah, you know, just a uh, point of privilege. My, my sense was, while there is, I think perhaps one could argue merit to that argument, at the end of the day, this was a document that was dozens of pages long that was a reflection of, uh, close to a year of um, interagency meetings addressed almost uniformly uh, to counter the rise of anti-Semitism. Within certain footnotes, there was mention of Islamophobia, but it but was by no means like the central purpose of the document. And now, as many have said, including I think those from the White House and the interagency in the US government, uh, words only carry you so far, hold us to account. Let's make sure that we're doing what we said we would do. Well, having someone like Deborah Lipstadt as our ambassador on anti-Semitism, and I really recommend that people read uh, uh, Felicia Herman's excellent interview with, with uh, Professor Lipstadt, or Ambassador Lipstadt in, in this superior. I think these are massively important steps. And again, I, I have the privilege as a writer of basically saying what I want to say, and I know that every government document has 5,000 cooks in the kitchen, uh, so to speak. Um, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to uh, cavil about every, every point. The, the broad effort there, I think, was, was hugely important, right? But that being said, um, I would have liked to have seen a document that was about that, that, that said, not only is anti-Semitism a major problem that requires a, a whole of government, uh, some kind of major uh, response, but integral to that problem is that there's this thing called anti-Zionism, which is pervasive among, the, particularly on college campuses and the educated classes uh, in, uh, in the United States. And we are fooling ourselves in imagining that anti-Zionism is somehow distinct from anti-Semitism or a legitimate expression of a political point of view as opposed to just another version of the same old bigotry. Um, I think we have time for about maybe one more question and then, uh, then we'll call it a day. Um, let's see, it's... Um, Boy, the questions are they're coming in thick. Have you seen, I'm like this is, we're like 55 questions here. So <laughs> might have to have a round two of some kind. Um, Okay, I'll just go with this one. Um, Ellen Heyman says, it seems that the problem with mainstream Jewish leadership is that they seem to lump Jew hatred with other forms of prejudice. They then use our resources to fight hate in general. They completely miss the uniqueness of Jew hatred and the centrality of conspiracy theory and envy that you mentioned. What can we do to affect a paradigm change in 
the leadership. I think you Sorry, kind of I, I, I missed the predicate here. Who's the they we're speaking of? Uh, it seems as if the they here is other, uh, well, it's actually not necessarily completely clear. Um, mainstream Jewish leadership, mainstream Jewish leadership, is that, it seems that the problem, yeah. Um, I know that people love to uh, kvetch about mainstream Jewish leadership um, and, you know, Lord knows you can you can find a lot of fault. Um, I see actually a mainstream Jewish leadership in, in, in my experience um, that is you know trying to grapple with uh, a, you know a, a, a very large question and and you know <laughs> I'm glad there is a mainstream Jewish leadership. It's it's actually extraordinary when you compare it with 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 uh, other ethnic groups and the entire effort, the entire point of this essay was hopefully to give that mainstream leadership a sense of how to really go about this, this work. You know, some of them might agree with me, some of them uh, might, might not, but it comes down to my central con conviction that has been with me for a long time, that the best response to anti-Jewish hate and prejudice is a strong, proud, knowledgeable, secure, and capable Jewish community that believes in itself. And that is where our efforts should bend. Um, I understand lots of people feel like they wanna give millions of dollars to fighting anti-Semitism, and these are intelligent and well-intended people and some of their efforts may bear more fruit than the efforts of others. But my message, particularly to those people, and I suspect some of them are on this call, is uh, you got $20 million you wanna spend on fighting anti-Semitism? Make sure that 200 more Jewish kids in your neighborhood have an opportunity to attend Jewish day schools and uh, know uh, what it is, what, what it is, what, what this, what this tradition and culture and religion and civilization they are a part of is all about. That is gonna do far more to ultimately fight anti-Semitism or to at least strengthen the Jewish community than um, you know, putting on pins and, and getting ad spend um, so that people feel like, oh, we've, we've mentioned anti-Semitism as one of the hatreds that now, now uh, uh, the world needs to need, needs to think about. If we can do that, you know, the Jewish community is not a stupid community. Um, uh, if we can do that well, we're gonna we're gonna be helping ourselves. And so I just hope this essay advances that point of view. I love disagreement, <laughs> so if people disagree, they're free to go their own way. But at least I hope that I provoked some real thinking along these lines that maybe. Uh, 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 is something they might not have heard in the rest of their their menu of of reading. So that's that's my message to them. Brett, deeply appreciate this uh, compelling and provocative essay. There are a lot more questions I want to ask about uh, white supremacy, um, about how, as Deborah Lipstadt mentions, how anti-Semitism is sometimes the canary in the coal mine of democracy. I encourage everyone not just to read Brett's essay, though you should but also read the other essays 
um, in Sapir. To the hundreds of you that joined today, we deeply appreciate your time. To the hundreds more that will listen on YouTube or elsewhere, thank you very much for your time. And please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. And we appreciate uh, the fact that you're you know, part of the Sapir family. Thank you very much, Brett. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Be well.